Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. One of my favorite topics, Tyler. In yes, the, it is. In the obscure universe of, of coastal-related topics. Uh, this is a climate change show today, ladies and gentlemen. But we are going to be talking about a provision of the IRS code referred to as 45Q. And it is a provision that's been in the law for a number of years, but uh, provides tax credits for those companies that capture and store CO2. In other words, this is the federal market, essentially, for carbon capture uh, that has quietly been created over the last, I think, about five years. And uh, there is a proposal on Capitol Hill at this time as part of the Build Back Better bill, which is the major, major spending authorization uh, sought by President Biden. It's about $2 trillion in total. Uh, The bill covers a vast uh, array of issues, including an expansion and upgrade to the carbon capture tax credit. program that we are now running in the United States, and we've got an expert to talk to us, Tyler, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the developments are these days. Well, indeed, we have been down this path now a ways, and uh, Peter, we've done a few shows on this uh, topic, beginning with uh, going to the Bureau of Economic Geology over at UT and learning about the research that they're doing where they are looking at ancient beaches, yeah, ancient beaches, which are the types of uh, layers where you can deposit and uh, they say securely store uh, CO2. So there is absolutely a beach connection. You don't have to look far. Uh, They're (laughs) drilling into ancient beaches, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, And we have done uh, several other shows about this subject. 45Q is absolutely a, a hugely important response to the carbon emissions in the atmosphere yeah. global warming problem yeah um and but it, it it's a weird one because uh, it turns out that the this response involves uh giving tax credits at least for right now in the immediate term to oil and gas companies right and that that just feels weird going down the pipe i gotta say it does so I it's mean. definitely worth exploring we need to understand this this is happening uh it's going to be moving forward there are even scientists who say that without this method, secure geologic storage, that we would be unable to respond effectively to climate change and the temperature of, of uh, planetary temperature would go up beyond 2.5 degrees and maybe even much further. So uh, this, is a, this is a really interesting topic, Peter, and you're right, we do have an excellent guest to walk us through it. We do. Joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Nick Kuznets. Nick is a reporter with Inside Climate News and wrote an article that came out in Inside Climate News. So for those of you who are not driving or running and listening to the show, if you've got access to your computer, Inside Climate News, the story came out on December 1st. And the title of that story is fossil fuel companies stand to make billions from the breaks in the Democrats build back better bill. It's an outstanding, well-researched article that explains uh, IRS uh, provision 45Q, the carbon capture and storage tax credit system and the proposed improvements to that system, really increasing the value of the credit. So really looking forward to talking to Nick Kuznets today and learning more about his research on 45Q. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by 
LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Find them at lja.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Nick, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast. Appreciate your time. Hi, yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, Nick, uh, we really were uh, intrigued by the story and the proposed uh, changes to 45Q that are in the Build Back Better bill. Um, and before we dive into the details, could you give us an introduction to Inside Climate News and your work there? Sure. Inside Climate News, it's a nonprofit news organization, and we uh, write about climate change uh, really with a public interest and investigative uh, lens. So uh, it's been around for more than a decade now, um, but we have a staff of uh, around 20, give or take. And, you know, we have people who write more about science, um, people who write about politics, agriculture, and I primarily write about oil and gas. Uh, Nick, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to find that beat? Uh, what's your personal background? Sure. Uh, I, how did I find this beat? I had, since I was a kid, sort of cared about and been interested in the environment and environmental issues. And um, that just continued. And, and I'd always like writing too. Um, and so when I got into journalism, um, you know, soon after college, it was really just kind of, well, the environment in general was, was the thing I wanted to write about most. Uh, then also at the time, this was like, I, w I went to, I was in grad school at UC Berkeley, uh, 2007 to 2009. And this was right around when, um, fracking was really kind of revolutionizing oil and gas in, in the United States. And so I just kind of started on it then. And I, I haven't been covering it exclusively for that long, but I just keep, have kept coming back to it over, over the years. Such an important topic to follow the uh, oil and gas industry. We're from we're down here in Austin, Texas. Peter, Nick. Peter, you worked on a rig. I was a roughneck for two summers in college. And yes, I you I, hear that, ladies I and gentlemen. Was... And Peter, actually, <laughs> I, I, I can tell you some stories. Uh, but Peter, Peter was really good. There's part of the job was to throw the chain. Yeah, it was a very good chain hand. Chain hand. Yes. What it's called. Chain hand on the spinning chain. These were deep gas wells, about 18,000 feet in the Permian Basin. They were they were very deep wells. But it's a it's a very important industry here in Texas. Uh, Houston considered the energy capital of the world. Uh, we're used to this industry. It's obviously important economically, but uh, the fair assessment, of course, is the burning. Everyone knows of fossil fuels is a significant contributor to the issue of, of climate change. Uh, we just finished COP26, the uh, intergovernmental UN pan, uh, uh, climate change conference in Glasgow, Scotland. This is on the top of the mind of everybody in the world who's serious about the future. Uh, and you're uh, covering this issue and Inside Climate News is focused on uh, climate 
over the last decade. This is in cr critically important uh, for the public. And uh, I, and I want to uh, just ask uh, kind of broadly, in your tenure at Inside Climate News, uh, I believe it goes back about five years, back to 2016, can you talk about sort of the evolution of the issue and the coverage of the issue or what you are seeing as major trends over the last five years in the area of climate reporting and coverage? Yeah, there, there really has been a big shift over that period. I mean, when I started, um, as you said, about five years ago, certainly the big newspapers were writing about climate change. I mean, it was, it was definitely covered, but, um, there wasn't the kind of focus in kind of mainstream media that there's come to be. So over this period, I mean, when I started, in a sense, we had much less competition. There were many fewer people really um, looking at climate change across the media. And for example, if I mean, I didn't cover oil and gas exclusively back then, but you wouldn't have had um, many stories from like energy industry reporters at the business press that were really talking about climate change. I would say for the most part, those business stories about the energy sector largely ignored climate change, um, or if not ignoring it, just, you know, it, it played a smaller role. Whereas now, if you look even at like Bloomberg, Reuters, a lot of the big business press, I mean, I think climate change is now sort of unavoidably a, a huge part of, of the business story as well as the kind of more conventional environment story. And of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post, you know, they've really built out climate teams. So there's there's been a really big shift over that period. Justifiably, uh, a, a tremendously important issue. We're going to be talking today about 45Q. And I wonder uh, if you wouldn't mind, Nick, could you give our audience an overview of what 45Q is all about? Yeah, 45Q, as you said, it's a tax credit. And I never thought a year and a half ago that I would have spent so much time looking at a tax credit uh, that was first put into law in 2008, actually. And the whole idea was to um, create an incentive for companies to, at that time, just pull carbon dioxide out of smokestacks and emissions from power plants or other industrial facilities. Um, so carbon capture and storage, or it was used to be called carbon capture sequestration, is this technology that has been around for a while, for decades, really, uh, to one extent for another or another. Um, but particularly in the in the mid 2000s, when Congress was looking at um, uh, passing climate legislation, there was this huge burst of of focus and talk and the coal industry at that time really promoted the technology as like um, their ticket to the future and as as a, a sort of way of saying that they could be part of a you know lowering emissions by by pulling carbon dioxide out of their own power plant emissions yeah clean um, clean, clean coal i think is clean is, coal yeah right and that was i mean to the extent that people heard about this back then that was how they heard about it i think um the climate legislation, of course, didn't end up being enacted uh, and carbon capture and storage didn't really happen. There, there are and have been for a while a handful of um, industrial facilities, mostly like natural gas processing and ethanol, where the economics works that that do happen. But 
for the most part, the technology has not taken off. It never has, despite decades uh, of promises. And so this first iteration back then was was an effort to do that. But, you know, as I said, it didn't work, really. The, the credits were not very high. And it sort of came back, I think, um, to a large degree over the last several years due to a combination of, of factors, I think. I mean, one of the big ones is that when uh, the United Nations published a report about the the difference between meeting the most ambitious climate goal from the Paris Agreement of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, the difference between that and two degrees, and it found that, you know, this is would be really huge just in terms of impacts uh, to people around the world and really to like lives, you know, and huge, huge disturbances uh, and the differences between the two. And I think more and more people started to see that perhaps simply limiting emissions wouldn't be enough. We need to do that, but then we might also need to actually pull carbon dioxide out of the air. You know, one of the things that uh, I would love to get your your um, thoughts on during this period of time, go, going back to the original 45Q and the clean coal era, were, was this idea originally sponsored by uh energy companies is that kind of from from where it came more or less yeah i mean the technologies were developed by energy companies and in fact it was oil and gas that that really first pioneered technology um it, it so sometimes when when the company is pulling natural gas out of the ground um what they're really going for is methane. That's what you're burning in like a stove or, or a power plant or whatever. But it can be mixed. It's usually mixed with other gases. And sometimes it's mixed with a lot of carbon dioxide. And so in order to sell the methane, the oil and gas company has to pull that carbon dioxide out of it. Uh, so companies develop technology to do that. Then separately, um, again, decades ago, oil companies discovered that when they're pumping, when an oil field is sort of largely depleted, if you pump carbon dioxide down into it, you can push more oil out of the ground. Um, and so uh, several decades ago, companies realized that you could kind of pair these two. For the most part, the carbon dioxide that oil companies use to, to push oil out of the ground, it's called enhanced oil recovery. Most of that carbon dioxide is actually just mined like pulled out of the ground in places where it's naturally occurring. But in a few cases where it was maybe close to one of these natural gas processing plants, they kind of paired the two and that's the origins. But then it was really the coal industry, I think that that made a big push um, in the 2000s for saying, hey, we can do this with power plants. Really an interesting thing to see coal kind of emerge first with this uh, and and then politically so this is obviously a federal tax credit um was this you know without I, I i hate to get into partisan stuff here but but was this supported i normally think oil and gas companies i think of republican uh republicans in in congress maybe backing this but what was the nature of the political support originally for 45q uh, was it mostly kind of the oil and gas block, if you will, or was there a green kind of forward thinking like, hey, this this is something that uh, we need to do from more of the environmental perspective? The I mean, 
the politics have shifted somewhat, but uh, th there has been democratic support for this uh, for a while. And some of the most prominent sponsors in Congress uh, have been Democrats, sometimes Democrats from, from coal states, like uh, former Senator Heidi Heitkamp was a big supporter from North Dakota. Um, today, one of the biggest supporters is Joe Manchin from West Virginia, another coal state. Um, so, but carbon capture and storage, I think, has been this really rare thing, perhaps a unique thing of a, a bipartisan potential climate solution. And I say potential because it gets pretty tricky, um, but it has pulled support. Now, interestingly, there's been support not only from coal state senators, but for example, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's from Rhode Island and a Democrat and has long been one of the biggest proponents for climate legislation, he's been a supporter. Um, it hasn't been across the board. And in particularly, I think um, as carbon capture and carbon removal has gotten more attention in recent years, it's become more of a polarizing issue on the left and in the Democratic Party. But it has traditionally drawn support from some Democrats and Republicans. I think we and we had had the, have had the opportunity to speak with Senator Whitehouse on the podcast uh, about his interest in 45Q. He is a committed uh, climate change responder. He believes that we've got to do something to get the CO2 out of the air and quit adding more to it. He's a big fan of carbon capture and sequestration and a proponent of 45Q. I don't know if he's uh, uh, in favor of the latest uh, iteration of the tax credit proposal that's in Build Back Better, but uh, we'll hope to find that out. Um, can we talk broadly, and I'd like to explain to the audience a little bit about what this tax credit is and the conversation Tyler and I were having before the show about the difference between a carrot and stick approach when it comes to climate change, uh, carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, on the one hand, it was often talked about having a carbon tax of so much per ton of CO2 that you emitted and companies would then create a carbon market, and instead of paying the tax, they could reduce their emissions. That kind of the stick approach, which is we're going to charge you and penalize you as an emitter or a producer of greenhouse gases, that's the stick approach. The uh, the carrot approach is to is to actually pay the companies to do this rather than tax them and. Uh, can you walk us through what a tax credit is and how it would work or how it does work under 45Q, if you wouldn't mind a broad overview of, of tax policy, uh, Nick? Sure. Uh, before we do that, I realize I might not have actually totally answered your question before about the politics because I didn't talk about all the Republican support it's gotten. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Okay. So while... Uh, carbon capture and storage has had support from some Democrats and particularly have, have promoted it as a climate solution. There's a huge, um, a huge welling of support from Republicans and Republicans in some really key fossil fuel states um, like Wyoming, for example, um, Texas and North Dakota, and particularly Wyoming and North Dakota. The, the uh, congressional delegations there have been big supporters of carbon capture and, and, both of those states, oil and gas industries um, and the coal industries really st stand to gain a lot. I mean, the coal industry, of course, because carbon capture and storage is essentially the only hope that coal plants can continue to operate if, if the country is going to cut its emissions. And for oil and gas, uh, Wyoming has a big 
um, enhanced oil recovery industry. So a, a big contingent of companies that inject carbon dioxide down to the ground. So if they can get a tax credit that, um, you know, pays companies to capture carbon dioxide, it can essentially act like a subsidy for that, for that industry. It, it definitely uh, can. And uh, the, it, it's interesting that when you're talking about enhanced oil recovery and in the injection of CO2 into depleted oil fields to produce more CO2, that that is a specific provision of 45Q. Currently, uh, that tax credit is worth $35 a ton. Every For every ton of CO2 you inject into a depleted oil field to produce more oil, the uh, government will write off $35 on your taxes. But if we would, let's talk about the difference between this carrot and stick approach. And, it, and if you would enlighten uh, our listeners a little bit about about the, the, the policy choice that we have made as a country to go down the carrot alley of this uh, response strategy. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's not, it's not new in American politics, right? I think there's particularly the Republican Party, but not only the Republican Party, often really favors giving business incentives rather than mandates and regulations, right? And so that's what this tax credit is. Um, the way it works is a company that is able to pull CO2 out of its um, emissions or now also out of the air directly and then have that CO2 stored underground, either permanently deep underground or in an oil field. You know, any company that can do this can can get a credit, a tax credit. Um, now, one thing that the Build Back Better Act would do if it's passed in addition to increasing the value of those credits, it would actually turn that into a direct payment. So currently, you know, a company has to deduct it from their taxes, essentially. The direct payment option would mean that the IRS would just could just essentially write a check um, and pay a company to do this. Can we all get in on this business? I right now it's <laughs> Nick, yeah, right. Nick, well, you, so... <laughs> you, Peter and I, I say it's pretty good. I'd say that that's not a bad business. I think we need a pump. <laughs> well, this is so one of the issues here, and this is starting to get to the kind of edges of my um, understandings and ability of, of taxes and tax law. But some of the companies that that might be in a position to do this or have been in a position to do this, they don't always owe, they don't always have a very big tax burden, or in some cases they don't have a tax burden. I mean, this can be true in the oil and gas industry where uh, it's commodity driven and in years when um, oil prices are low, sometimes oil and gas companies don't pay taxes, you know, this year or that year. But it's also true, I think, in the utility sector. Um, and so something, there's the, there are markets basically where companies that are in this position but want to get the credit, they can go out and get an investor, and that investor then sort of takes the tax credit and takes a cut of the benefits. So right. the direct pay option would give those companies that aren't paying very much or any taxes an option to just get it directly anyway. Right. This is a very, very meaningful provision, the direct payment option in uh, the Build Back Better bill, which, by the way, is pending, and is, I believe it has passed has it passed the House yet, or where yeah. is the? So it passed the House, and and now it's it's in, in, in the Senate. In the Senate now, so it's not quite there yet, but moving forward, uh, the the tax credits in forty five Q are tradable, so and they're investable. So 
uh, Tyler, you and I, Nick, could get together and form a partnership and uh, and buy into a uh, 45Q tax credit uh, system. And it might mean that we're the investors who build the capture system or we help operate it. But the tax credit can be shared with investors outside of the folks who generate the credit. Uh, that's an important thing. The direct payment option, as you say, rather than writing down your taxes dollar for dollar, which is what a tax credit does, uh, what we're talking about in the Build Back Better Bill proposal is that, as you said, the IRS would make a direct payment of the value of the credit to the company. Now, that is a huge deal. Now, uh, that is a, that, that, now I just want to say this is a dream for most Americans. <laughs> the fact that, that you would invoice the IRS and that they would pay you right is really i think you've got to be an oil and a gas company to, well, to make that you know work. we're trying to we're trying to respond to a real problem so we're trying to figure out how to get these companies to do what we want them to do and money talks i guess is what the, yes, what the bottom I line suppose is so. for, uh for the audience out there so the here, let me lay out just basically the current tax credit currently in the law as it sits right now uh you get paid if you uh, capture and uh, securely store uh, uh, greenhouse gases, CO2 primarily, $50 per, for, per ton. For every ton you get, they, you get a tax credit of $50. Uh, if you are using that CO2 that you capture to pump into a depleted oil field and improve oil uh, recovery, the tax credit is worth $35 a ton. A little bit less, Tyler, because we're producing uh, more oil and gas, which will produce more of CO2. So the value of the credit for enhanced oil recovery currently at $35 a ton. Under the Build Back Better law, the tax credit for storage, for capture and storage, would go from $50 a ton to $85 a ton. And for enhanced oil recovery, it goes from $35 a ton up to $60 a ton. So substantial increases in the value of the credit and now tied to the direct payment option. So this is a very um, lucrative, uh, could be a very lucrative uh, tax credit for the businesses out there. Nick, you might have crunched these numbers, but like as percent increases, I'm just doing this math in my head, but it seems as though the secure geologic storage $50 to $80 increase 85. is $85 increase. Is that the same percentage increase as the enhanced oil recovery or is it less? It seems proportionately... Like they're putting more emphasis on the enhanced oil recovery. That's just my mental math. It's roughly the same. They're, they're both about a 70% increase. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Nick, uh, what in your article uh, in Inside Climate News coming out December 1st, Fossil Fuel Companies Stand to Make Billions is the short title. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what the potential payout is for the companies who effectively capture and store co2 yeah i mean in short the potential it could be very very large as, as the headline says billions right um now i think like one of the key things here something that's changed since they were increased in 2018 and today is you have a, a lot of industries and in particular the oil and gas industry talking a much different game about uh, carbon capture and carbon removal. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. And, you know, partly seeing the writing on the wall that, you know, the world is going to start, um, that world, go you know, governments are going to start limiting emissions. 
Um, and I think increasingly the industry is seeing that this is like a, a potential big business opportunity. ExxonMobil, for example, which has been one of the laggards in the oil and gas industry in terms of uh, announcing efforts to cut its own emissions, it announced uh, a new, a whole new business line called Low Carbon Solutions that's going to focus on carbon capture and, and other, you know, low carbon technologies. Um, so I think that they're both seeing that there may be more incentive, more carrots and more sticks for them to do this. And then at the same time, they're, they're pushing for them. So Exxon has been a major proponent of increasing the value of this tax credit, uh, along with you know, many other players in the energy industry, um, but also sort of components of, of the environmental uh, advocacy sector. And so it, it's, I mean, of course, you only get the credit if you actually capture the CO2 and and store it, or at least, um, you know, have the paperwork to show it's stored. I mean, what, how long that stays there is a separate question. But um, so it's dependent on actually succeeding in doing it, right? So it's hard to say how much is really going to go out. But companies are saying that they're going to be capturing um, millions or tens of millions of tons uh, in, in a matter of a decade or so. And so if you do the math, it works out to, to many billions of dollars, potentially tens of billions. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, Peter, what comes to mind is, is, uh, spraying a little carburetor fluid into your motor to get her fired up. I mean, we are pouring some serious, I don't want to say pouring gasoline, no. but, uh, we are, we are, we are definitely, uh, putting some fuel here behind this in this carrot uh, mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick, I'm curious, uh, in the newsroom and inside climate news, how do your the other reporters who are on other beats uh, following climate change from other sectors of the space, how do they uh, how are they taking this uh, these developments that you're reporting on? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think people have a bit of a jaundiced eye and and um, this is part of what has made the politics around carbon capture and carbon removal really tricky. So as I'd mentioned, I think you increasingly have not just industry folks, but scientists and policy people and even some advocates saying that some degree of carbon capture and carbon removal will be necessary. And to make the distinction, so carbon capture, I think, refers to when you're capturing, you're removing CO2 from emissions of a, an industrial power plant. Carbon removal is this emerging technology to just pull it straight out of the air. Um, so while there there is this sort of increasing awareness that some degree of this will be necessary, and in particular, the carbon capture piece, like, um, I think most climate advocates, many scientists would say that the future of carbon capture in the power sector is, is small at best because renewable and electricity and renewable power generation has become so cheap and is only going to become cheaper. But where it could play a bigger role is in the cement sector, yes. in steel, and in some industrial applications where there's, you know, those sectors have, that's a real big part of global emissions and there aren't sort of yet cheap good fixes to remove those emissions right uh 
In, indeed, and and the uh, this is one of the complexities of developing uh, climate response strategies. Forty five Q being, as we are saying, is the carrot. Uh, there is concern out there that if there is a way to capture flume gas emissions, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are coming from coal or natural gas fired power plants, that this process of incentivizing the removal of the CO2 extends the life of these fossil fuel based energy uh, generation systems. Uh, but the bottom line here is that we're putting less CO2 in the air, and that's fundamentally what we all agree needs to happen. We either need to put less, quit adding more to the atmospheric loading of greenhouse gases, and we need to begin to remove it. So, in effect, regardless of the complexity, isn't the bottom line here that that we're going to spend a lot of money and the net effect should be there is less greenhouse gases, particularly CO2, in the atmosphere than there otherwise would be. Is that a fair foundation of this policy, even there, though the trade-offs and the complexities of implementation can be a little overwhelming? I mean, basically, that's what we're trying to do. Well, I think there's there's a number of concerns, and you touched on, on some. So, I mean, one of them is, as you mentioned, that in the short term, um, this credit will um, basically allow certain some coal plants which have been closing at a really rapid rate to make an argument to investors and to regulators hey no you know we don't have to close like we were going to plan to in three years or five years or whatever um, because the economics have changed here and now we we might be able to install this equipment that can capture our emissions and we'll be able to keep keep operating and then that that might not actually work out. And then what you end up with is a coal plant that operated three or five or however many years longer than uh, it would have otherwise. And I think like a colleague of mine who writes about clean energy has written about a coal plant where something like this has happened now. I mean, of course, we it's too soon to say how it's going to shake out. But, you know, a coal plant has got a new owner. It was supposed to shut. The new owner says they're not going to shut it because they're going to put carbon capture on and, and that might or might not work out. So that's that's kind of one concern. But another concern, I think, is that even even if it if the technology does become viable to some degree, um, you know, there's there's only so much government money and spending to go around and carbon capture and storage has been while it's technically proven like it's possible, it's it's so far been a, you know, largely uh, a failure economically. It's just been too far too expensive to do. And so I think people are saying, well, why are we putting billions of dollars to support this thing that may or may not work uh, when we have other options that we know will work and, and you know, we could put the money there. Um, and, and it's worth mentioning so that this tax credit, while it's significant, as I said, potentially billions or tens of billions of dollars a year. Um, they're, uh, it's not the only support. So the, the infrastructure bill that recently passed Congress and was signed into law by President Biden included uh, at least $12 billion in just sort of direct support for carbon capture and storage and, and, and carbon removal. Well, you know, the there's thing also, well, oh, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's another kind of concern, which is um, 
you know, a little different, which is that um, that if if we sort of count on on being able to use this technology, um, you know, we might not slash emissions as fast as we really need to. That in a sense, people will sort of count on developing a technology, and that you know, it may not if it doesn't work out. We'll be in a much worse spot than had we really just focused on on cutting emissions, on closing coal plants, on on finding other solutions um, that uh, you know that we know will work. I'm reminded of uh, a, a saying that I know is not original to my grandfather, but he used to tell me this when I would uh, complain about some just insane thing that the U.S. government was doing, and. He would say, you know, we got the best government money can buy. And um, this is definitely uh, in line with that kind of effort. It, we are throwing cash uh, at the problem. Uh, it should be of no surprise, I don't think, to anyone who is receiving, who will likely be receiving this cash. Um, though I do hope that we will have some new players coming in. Um, it seems to me like the oil and gas industry uh, wants to turn the corner uh with with incentives like this and um it is it's it's weird i agree that we need it um but i i i have to say that i'm i don't like it uh at its root a, a couple things that just come to mind for me is that and maybe this is part of the political problem and i suspect this also probably comes up in the in the writer's room that you don't have to nick weigh in on this but you know i really think that uh the 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 way that corporations have fleeced uh the u.s government and fleeced the the american people on this stuff is just utterly disappointing and uh it's just it's just blows my mind in a way that we can't even we can't do a little baby stick just a little punishment to the oil and gas industry for lying and misleading the american public on this issue we can't turn around and just slap them on the wrist and then say go sequester your carbon now we can't do that in this country i th i think that there will be a political problem i i just as much as the oil and gas industry would like to do this and and in years past maybe they could have i i'm not peter i think that politically it is uh I think it's it's a it's a treacherous path. I don't think it measures up as being fair or right on its face. What do you think, Nick? Well, I mean, I guess one thing I will say is there uh, there a lot of the skepticism and distrust does come from from the oil and gas industry's history and its history of supporting climate denial, of lobbying against efforts to limit emissions, and you know degrees to which you know, that continues to this day. Uh, and so I think, you know, one thing that the oil and gas industry and, and other super powerful industries, but it's certainly up there in, in the top, have been very good at is is working political systems, working things like tax incentives to their favor, you know, to maximize their profits. And I think that's what a lot of the advocates who I've talked to who follow this, who are really kind of skeptical about it, that's their concern. They're saying, look, this is what what the industry has done in the past is just work the system to maximize its own profits, regardless of of you know the public good, and that's what they're doing here. Uh, and um, you know we need to proceed really carefully. Hmm. 
Free market advocates would argue that uh, the profit motive is the driving force of the American economy, and building in a profit motive to respond to climate change is a great long-term strategy. Uh, so, uh, Tyler, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, mean, yes, it, yes, free money prop- motivates, and we want them to change their behavior, and we're going to write some checks to do it. I mean, what's the problem? I am a free market capitalist right here. I'm sitting right. right with you. I am. I but I I believe that it is anti-capitalist to be polluting the atmosphere, creating a cost on the commons, and not be paying for it. Hmm. I think it's just quite that simple. You're a, you're a stick fan as opposed to a carrot fan. No, I, well, I, I'm a fan of the stick. And to go back to my tragedy of the commons, yeah, if you're going to throw your sheep in there outside of the rules, I want the sheriff to come by and, and give you a, a spanking. Yeah. I mean, I think th- this has been a dilemma in, the, in our discussion about 45Q from the very beginning as we've looked into this and in, in both the technical issues and what's going on from a policy perspective and the tax credit side. Uh, it's uncomfortable that what we consider to be the bad actors are benefiting uh, by participating in the solution. The, the flip side of that is, is to remember that the oil and gas industry is serving every single one of us, that we are all consumers of that product, and to isolate them as an independent actor uh, is really kind of unfair because it is all of us. This is our power source right now in primarily in transportation but in certain sectors of the energy production sector that we're a fossil fuel based economy that needs to change in the meantime as that transition slowly unfolds as new technologies come in what we're trying to do is have less co2 in the atmosphere a goal i think everyone fundamentally agrees with uh our my question really isn't so much about whether it's uh, appropriate. I, it is a bit uncomfortable, but it. I do think this is an appropriate thing to do, to make investments to reduce the amount of CO2 and greenhouse gases going to the atmosphere. My question really has to do with the, the efficiency of this particular approach. Is the tax credit going to be an effective way to reduce CO2 emissions? Um Nick, in your reporting, is there a an analysis that that demonstrates that this particular approach to tackling or reducing CO two emissions is likely to succeed in a you know tons of stuff in the atmosphere? You know, well, criteria. What I can say is is you can we can look at what's happened so far. Okay, uh, with the tax credit, right? And and so far. Um, since its inception in 2008, 72 million metric tons have been um, sequestered hmm. uh, or pulled out of the air, um, including there was about 10 million tons from uh, June 2019 to June 2020. Now, um, in terms of that, that might sound like a big number. And in a sense, it is a big number, but it's like... Uh, completely insignificant when you look at even just the nation's emissions, right? It's, it's tiny. Yeah. Um, now I think the supporters of the bill, uh, sorry, supporters of the tax credit say, well, that's why we need to increase the value. It's, it hasn't been high enough to, uh, to make the economics work. And so no one is adopting it. Um, but, you know, at a certain point it, it's, there's two questions. I think one is, does it make it happen? Right. And, and yeah. it hasn't really so far. Um, and then there's a second question where if it does make it happen, is it a cost effective way of doing it? Right. Um, 
And and that is is tricky because, you know, part of I think some some people who, you know, some smart people who support this say, like, look, this is a technology that we're going to need like 10, 20, 30 years from now. It's not about whether it's cost effective today, hmm. you know, and they point to tax credits that were given to solar and wind, for example, decade, you know, a couple of decades ago. And yep. those industries still get those. But things that really help drive down the costs of the technologies. Um, but but there at a certain point, it, yeah, there is a question of like, is this an effective way of lowering the emissions? And, and if there's a huge tax credit that makes the economics work, putting it on a, an oil refinery, like, is that is that better or should that oil refinery just have shut because we don't need the oil because people are, you know, driving electric cars and uh, people are electrifying homes, you know, right. That's, that's a big question that that is more future looking. And, we, you know, it's, it's our, that's the big policy debate, I think. Well, and, and Peter, this gets exactly to what you're saying. I saw this great political cartoon come across my LinkedIn page and it. It was a, a depiction of like a cigarette smoking cowboy, real gruff looking kind of oil tycoon character. Uh, and he's saying, you know, basically uh, that the rest of the developing world needs these uh, petrochemicals to advance into uh, a higher quality of life. And, you know, this is why we need to keep keep the pumps going. Um and I don't know. I, I, I think that that I can see why the oil and gas industry would like that to be the case. I can clearly see yeah. how. And, you, and Peter, you are correct. We are we our economy, the global economy. I was just it was just Pearl Harbor Day uh, uh, the other day. And I was re going back and learning about the origins of, you know, it was oil. Japan where it was, had 18 months of oil left and uh, their imperial ambitions in Asia required an oil supply that they were getting from the United States and we turned it off and so they attacked huh. us interesting uh, so we are yes there's no doubt about it we we are in uh, the global economy the modern economy the energy that we use is absolutely oil and gas today but d d is shifting it, is it does it make any sense that we should be thinking about doing that in, yeah. in 30 years from now well i mean the, the, the point here is that there's a transition that's going to occur and is occurring in the in the power sector uh the obviously texas is a major wind power producing state the number one wind power producing state in america we're also the biggest oil and gas producing state and the biggest oil and gas exporter uh, from the united states and lng so but the transition is beginning to occur. What we're trying to do is take the edge off of fossil fuel emissions as this transition continues. The argument, I guess, against this is by incentivizing or making more acceptable or making less damaging the use of fossil fuels during the transition, you're extending the life of the emission sources. And I suppose that's probably to some it's extent. It's a subsidy. Of course it is. But what we're trying to do is get this damn uh, greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere. Uh, so to me, it's an efficiency thing. And uh, my sense, Nick, is, is this. At some point, you mentioned that to date, uh, the 45Q program has reduced uh, emissions 72 million tons, I believe is what you said. The yeah, I should clarify. That was that. I mean, that's the most recent data, but that's okay. it's like a year old data. So. OK, so a little bit. But in comparison annually it's about 45 gigatons or 50 between 45 and 50 billion tons of uh carbon dioxide equivalents are 
emitted into the atmosphere on the planet. So 72 million tons versus 50 billion tons, obviously a small step in the right direction. Um, we, so we've got to move in that direction and it's going to cost us money. And, and I think maybe going to the oil and gas industry, the folks who have the capacity to pipe and drill and store in, in secure geologic storage CO2, these are the guys who are going to get paid to do the work. Uh, and it's galling, but I, I'm not sure this is a bad policy. Nick, I don't, I don't want, I don't <laughs> want working. you to sacrifice your journalistic integrity here. I mean, I just, uh, I, you know, my my feeling, just quite honestly, Peter. Well, I absolutely agree that we do need to, to turn the corner, and we are not just going to turn off oil yeah. and gas. No. So there is a transition here. We need to transition to something else, and that's the piece of the policy that I real and and Nick, thanks for pointing it out because we have invested in solar and offshore wind and th it has taken some time to run these things up yeah uh and i i also uh, i said at the beginning of the show i'll say it again the uh science all the science that i have read about the differing trends of how we might be able to get our uh, atmosphere co2 load back down involves secure geologic storage it involves actually pump planting trees won't do it just merely cutting emissions alone won't do it. We actually have to... we got to go net negative, a lot of people are saying. We actually have to not just reduce the amount of emissions going into the atmosphere. We need, we actually have to go negative and start to pull it out. And that's what this stuff will... This I don't know, Nick. Is there a sense well, that, that this tax credit and similar policies around the world can drive technology into new capture and storage technologies? Yes, yeah, so that that is one thing that that's worth noting about the the changes in Build Back Better, which again is not law yet, right? That one thing it would do in addition to just raising the credit values over overall, it would make even significantly higher credit values for what's known as direct air capture. So this is technologies that pull carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, and so that's, you know, it's fundamentally different than yeah than something like carbon capture on a power plant or even an industrial plant right and I, there's there are people who um are really excited and enthusiastic about this technology that are not associated with the energy industry and say we really need this and and this this new value so for um currently these technologies just get the same credit that, that anything else would get but but uh the the current legislation would make it $180 a ton if you pull carbon dioxide out of the air and store it permanently underground. It would be 130 a ton if you use it for producing more oil, um, you know, an enhanced oil recovery, or if you are making, you know, other products. Like right. some companies are looking into making fuels actually out of this carbon dioxide, which would emit carbon dioxide, of course, but it would be a bit like more of a closed loop, at right. least in theory. Because um, so there are people because it's not the only incentive. So California also um, has its own sort of cap and trade law that part of it, there's a low carbon fuel standard that some of the same plants that, you know, might be able to take advantage of this 45Q credit can also like stack it, they're saying, which add it together with the California one. And you put those together and it's hundreds of dollars a ton. And so some people are saying like, look, this is what we really need. And 
here um, this this tax credit enhancement and you know increasing the value could really start to get the technology going. Now, again, I think one of the most controversial pieces is the fact that companies will still be able to get a credit, albeit a slightly lower one, even if they're using it to pump more oil. Right. And that's where some of the supporters in like the nonprofit world that are not associated with industry say like, well, that's, you know, that's, we don't support that. And right. so I think, yeah, that, that's something that again, the, the industry, so Occidental Petroleum, for example, which is one of the biggest uh, enhanced oil producing oil companies uh, in the country. It's, it's also one of the largest independent oil companies in the country. They, they're working on a plant that, that uh, they say could pull up to a million tons out of the air um, eventually. And, and they would use that either for enhanced oil recovery or for making things like lower carbon fuels. But so if they pulled that, that, that could be like $130 million a year, potentially that that right. plant would be getting, right. you know, if it were eligible. Of right. So that's a really important point here, the direct air capture. And just, I think you've explained it quite well, but the difference here is if I put a, a filter of sorts on a power plant, uh, coal plant, uh, uh, emission of flue gas uh, and and pull the CO2 out of it that's capture if I if I'm if I'm taking it directly out of the air direct I'm sorry that's recovery but if it's directly out of there and just setting up a filter and sticking it out in a field and turning it on and pulling the CO2 that's naturally in the, in the atmosphere out uh, that direct air capture credit at $180 per ton uh, reduced to $130 per ton if you're using the captured CO2 to, to produce more oil and gas from a depleted oil field. Uh, yeah, that's going to drive technology. $180 a ton seems like real money to me when you're talking about a plant that might capture a million tons per year out of the air. That's $130, $130 million payment from the IRS as potentially a direct payment to Occidental Petroleum. That's a, that's, Hell, that'll get you thinking about maybe doing something different. Yeah, I mean, some some context here for this. So this industry is sort of just emerging. There are some companies that have built um, plants that are actually doing this now. Um, the largest one just recently opened in, in Iceland, um, and I think it pulls like 4,000 tons a year. Right. So that's tiny right yeah little, tiny. and little... so the million one would be yeah a, a huge leap on this now i mean companies say it's it's you know that they can do this and and over not that huge long uh, a period um but a couple of other kind of challenges there there's cost so you know you mentioned 180 or 130 per ton so there's a whole range of costs but like a figure that i hear a lot is that a current cost is something like 600 per ton for doing this so um, you're losing money still substantially yeah although potentially. It, and and there are some companies like microsoft and stripe have actually paid um you know the company that's that's doing this this plan i mentioned in iceland they're paying them now to start to do this i think as a, a way to try to get the technology right. moving but another challenge is it's really energy intensive to do at least most current technologies and so you require either a lot of electricity or a lot of heat or both the plant in iceland 
they of course have a lot of geothermal right um heat and power and so that's a good place because if you are doing a direct air capture plant but you need to run a natural gas power plant to power it yeah it really significantly erodes <laughs> the value of that Right. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think the broad question, I want to do a poll here. It's a very limited poll, Tyler. So it this is. is the, the poll limited for you poll. and Nick. Um, is the use of financial incentives to address climate change in whatever form, credits, direct payments, uh, do you support market-based uh, uh, policies to drive change and in, in, to, to reduce CO2 emissions? Tyler, are you generally yes on market incentives or generally no? I am 100% yes, but I would include in the incentive category costs and uh, incentives that come in the form of a whack. <laughs> that's so the that's, stick. That's you an want to, you that want is stick. an incentive. That yeah. is an incentive. Okay, I and, see what you're saying. And I think that okay. what's missing here, though I do support this, if I was uh, Sheldon Whitehouse in the Senate, yeah. I would be campaigning vociferously to do this, but it is, to me... The Build Back Better uh, package is on this very subject missing a piece, okay. and right. I would I, I would like to see that remedied. We need to start pricing carbon uh, in the market. Like that the is the market the cap and trade model, basically. more like the cap and trade model. Yeah, and I think that consumers need to get accustomed to the true cost of carbon. I see, which includes the cost of eliminating uh, all of this yeah. stuff from. Uh, the atmosphere, and I got to tell you, putting it in, put, working this into the tax code does not do it. Huh. And and uh, I really feel as though this is an, an important part of this energy transition is in the psychosocial element in the general public, huh. understanding why things are changing and why we are going to be moving to different types of automobiles and why we, you know, air travel might cost different and elements of our life here in the next all right. 10, 20, 30 years are going to change dramatically. And this idea that the oil and gas industry is perpetuating, which I feel, is that, hey, look, we can continue to live these incredibly energy intensive and uh, carbon emission intensive lives without having to feel any change. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that. All right. Nick, what about you? Is is the market-based incentive approach in 45Q uh, something supportable or is it missing key elements in your mind? I guess what I would say is if you look at like most credible studies and analysis of, of what what it's going to take to meet um, climate goals, we need everything, right? We need, yeah. It requires government regulations yeah. that uh, limit emissions. It requires um, f actively phasing out fossil fuel consumption and production. It requires, you know, technological revolutions that uh you know are certainly helped along by government incentives and so i think um basically everything is needed to, to to meet climate goals and then the other thing i'd say is that uh the build back better bill the climate portions of it uh, at least so far through the negotiations in, in the senate and the house many of the biggest sticks were removed uh and it's relying much more on carrots Got it. Well, I'm going to weigh in. Uh, uh, look, I think the comparison you made earlier in the discussion, Nick, is quite right. Uh, the development of, of uh, 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 renewable energy sources in the power sector, uh, solar and wind power, was highly incentive-driven. 
over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, we are now seeing the fruits of those efforts uh, now with uh, 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 scaled wind power production. Uh, in the last year, the, the state, I mean, the, the United Kingdom had several days where the entire power uh, needs of the country were driven off of uh, renewable energy, primarily wind power in the North Sea. Uh, we Incentives work. Uh, money talks. If you want to change people's behavior, make it worth their while. Uh, I, uh, but I'm also a big fan of, of the it's everything and it's all of the above. We need carbon offsets. We need, uh, we need perhaps sticks and penalty provisions for bad actors. We need strong regulatory structures and we need a market incentive based approach. And we really need these carbon. Uh, we need this, we need this carbon offset market that's starting to develop. Uh, Nick at Inside Climate News, have you covered the climate offset market? This is really the private sector market, uh, that is developing around the world to, uh, incentivize reductions in CO2 emissions. Is that something that you've come across or covered in cl uh, Inside Climate News? I've certainly come across it and and um, I've, I've written just sort of quick news stories here and there, but have not done any kind of deep and sustained reporting on it. But uh, it, I mean, it's definitely something that's crossed my radar a lot, in particular covering oil and gas. You know, uh, a lot of the global oil and gas companies have been involved in in trying to shape these markets and see these markets as another potential um, business model. And particularly the some of the European oil majors like Shell and BP are already doing this to, to a degree there. They have parts of their company that sort of buy and sell credits and the like. So it's something that, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in trying to look at a little more closely. Well, it's such a fascinating subject, a lot to think about. We're at the precipice of really the beginning of a substantial uh, transformation. I think it is hoped as the, as the world addresses climate change, uh, it's a significant problem. There's, uh, it is no longer really tenable to be a climate change denier, I don't think, Tyler. I think we're past that point. Very much past that point now. And it, I, I think that, you know, we've been, we've been, that's why this is exciting to me, uh, that that this is a response. This yeah. is a response. It's a substantial we're, response. We're confronting it in this way. Yeah. And uh, again, I I celebrate it. I, if I was in the Senate, I'd be voting for it. But uh, I would also be yeah. pre presenting my own legislation to break out a, you know, cricket bat <laughs> and have <laughs> at it. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Now, pain is a motivator as well. Uh, you know, well, uh, so... Just one thing to add, you know, that's I think relevant and, and part of why some people are upset about this is the original Build Back Better bill had some of those cricket bats that you talk about, right? Like the Biden had said he wanted to eliminate existing subsidies for the oil and gas industry, and um, there was a provision that was going to essentially push the electric sector towards renewables, and, and those pieces have been removed, you know, so. Um, what's happened, at least to some extent, is many of those cricket bats were, were, were removed, but the incentive pieces stayed. Right. Well, it's worth following. It's great to, to speak with you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Nick Kuznets. He is a reporter with Inside Climate News. Look it up on the interweb 
and subscribe. It's a great news service. They do incredible work covering the full range of climate change related developments around the world. Uh, Nick, we really appreciate it. Uh, if folks are interested in following you personally in your reporting, uh, how can they do that? Well, beyond, uh, you know, subscribing to the newsletters on our website, you could also follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at NKUS, N-K-U-S, uh, and you'll find all my work there. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Kuznets from Inside Climate News. Thank you very uh, much, Nick, for dragging us through 45Q. It's a, it's a very interesting proposal. Billions of dollars are on the line. Follow it in the Build Back Better Law. If you're interested, uh, Nick, we'd love to have you back on and to talk to us about the climate issues anytime. So thank you very much for your time and on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. Beaches are sell to the hotels, my father.